0: The Guardian. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Claire Armistead, and me, Shan Kane. This week, we speak to Megan Phelps-Roper, a former member of the controversial Westboro Church in the U.S., about her journey out of that system of belief. And later, we'll have author and journalist Claire McGlasson in the studio with us to discuss some of the most fascinating accounts of subversive sects and cults in literature. Megan Phelps-Roper is a former member of the Westboro Baptist Church. Known for their extreme doctrines, controversial signage and the picketing of soldiers' funerals, the church gained widespread notoriety after appearing on the first of three BBC documentaries made by Louis Theroux, the last of which follows Megan after she left the church in 2012. Widely regarded as a hate group, the church was founded by Megan's grandfather, Fred Phelps, who has since died. She's now written a memoir called Unfollow about why she needed to leave and everything that has happened since. She spoke to Shan about it.
1: Now, I think um, some people who haven't heard of you uh, might know who you are already just based on your surname. Um, And... I was thinking about when I first heard about the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, and I was thinking that it was around about 2011. Um, and I was in Australia and I saw the uh, Louis Theroux documentary. And then I found your TED Talk, which was a TED Talk that you had delivered after you'd left the church. And um, it was kind of amazing, just in terms of obviously there'd been such a big mental shift. In you but physically you looked like a completely different person and that's got nothing to do with haircuts or whatever is you were carrying yourself in a completely uh, different way and um, obviously this this book unfollow that you've written now about your life you're, you're obviously having to look back on yourself in the past but um, do you look back on those clips do you ever go and watch yourself in from those old clips I do occasionally. It's really, um, it's a very strange, surreal
2: feeling because I look at it now and I remember exactly, what, you know, why, what I believed and why I was saying and doing the things that I did. And now I know all the reasons I no longer believe those things. And it's a, it's a strange feeling of like, it's like being forced to say something that I don't believe anymore, and it's just on the internet forever. Yeah. And so it's, it's definitely, it's something though that helps me. Feel um, and and show grace to other people that, that I think are doing things that are hurtful and destructive. And, and I don't just mean like on the scale of something like what Westboro does, but just in my own life, you know, people who aren't treating me, you know, exactly the way that I think that they should or something. Um, I, I just I know that we are shaped necessarily by our experiences and we are the product of those those experiences and that the only way to to change people for the better isn't to see them as exactly who they are in this moment this terrible thing that they're doing but as a human being with potential to change and and evolve for the better so it's a very weird experience but it definitely helps me it helps me maintain this attitude and posture of grace for other people. Generally, I think it's the same reason I didn't delete a bunch of like my old tweets and things when I when I left. I I think that those are, I think that those things are, like a a standing symbol and reminder of how people can grow and change over time.
1: That's so interesting because, I think that. I think certainly there is a tendency that we might watch those clips you know people that are just outsiders and think well uh, you know or maybe I'm projecting and you know she you know I can see a glint in her eye and she knows that what she's saying is wrong at this at this point Um, but I think what you're saying in this book and what you've just said now is kind of a bit different in that you didn't necessarily know but you can go from that position and go to someone somewhere very very different in a quite a short space of time really yeah absolutely i mean when i was at the church um
2: i was a hardcore believer you know i had been raised every single day reading the bible and talking about Westboro's understanding of it i was not you know West. they're not uh, unintelligent people. Mm. They're extremely intelligent and well-educated and analytical people. It's just that they, like me, were all raised with this with this understanding of this is how the world works and every tool that we had ever been given was just was yeah just used in service of that ideology and so it it just constrains everything, how you process everything. Um, so I absolutely was a believer and when it came to the moment where I, I no longer believed it became impossible to stay.
1: So um, just to sort of put you in, I guess, uh, context for some people that perhaps don't know how the Phelps-Roper family relates to uh, the Westboro Baptist Church. Um, Obviously, Fred Phelps was very, very famous as the sort of patriarch of um, both your family, but also as the the sort of founding member of this this church. They became very famous, I think, probably on uh, outside of... Topeka, Kansas, and I guess across America and then also the world, I'd say probably in the aftermath of um, some of the protests at uh, uh, picketing at at soldiers' uh, funerals um, after Afghanistan and Iraq wars, you sort of became very, very famous very instantly for these signs that were held, um, so uh, stuff like planes crash, God laughs, thank God for dead soldiers, Um, and the weirdest thing, I think, for a lot of people when they saw those signs and considered the Westboro Baptist Church and perhaps why people find them so interesting was that it was very clear, even just from glancing at those signs, that there was there was no real attempt to convert anyone. That's sort of just they're dead set in what they think is right. And that is basically what they believe and the rest of the world is wrong on the outside. Is that sort of fair to... Categorize yeah. it that way. So Westboro believes in
2: predestination. So we would we would say that how these words, this the truth of God as we understood it, how those words land on the hearts of men was the exclusive prerogative of God. So we can't not only are we're not trying to convince them, we can't convince them. All we can do is publish the message and you know how it lands on people's hearts, that that, you know, God will decide. And so and so they basically see it as the preaching is just a mechanism that God uses either to harden people's hearts, which that will be true for the vast majority of mankind. And then for the very few, these elect remnant, they call it, the, this very small, small group of people um, whom God loves, God will use that preaching as a, a mechanism to call them. To be part of our church, because that there was literally no one outside of Westboro, no other group, no other church, nobody with similar views, but maybe not quite exactly one hundred percent the same. Um, all of them were all doomed those those tiny um, tiny differences in in ideology was enough to doom them and and make it so that anybody involved with those churches was also hell bound so it was it was a very us them black and white situation and and leaving you know of course is is the absolute
1: worst or getting kicked out is the worst possible thing that could happen to you you were born into this family and you had really no choice at any point in regards to uh, religion and uh, morality and how you were being brought up you were you were born into this ideology and you had no way out um, and that, that can be kind of, I said I guess, quite hard for people and probably hard for you now to say your mother loves you and she also didn't give you a choice.
2: Right, because she saw it very clearly as, you know, the choice is I raise my daughter with these beliefs or she goes to hell forever. So it was absolutely because of her love for me that she thought she had to teach me these things and to, and to give me no option. And it's something that, absolutely frames how I see her and and look back at, at my past now you know I I could have and I sensed this tendency I write about this a little bit in the book um, I, I sense this tendency to this need to either go all one way so to only look at the terrible things that had happened and to let that completely color all of my experience you know you know from the present looking back at the past or maybe to go the other direction to only remember the positive things those the wonderful familial experiences and memories um and relationships and such that you know after i left like if if things became hard for me that i would only remember those things and and forget why i had left in the first place and i tried very hard Um, in the run up to my leaving, I I was keeping so many journals and and thinking about this stuff constantly, of course, how could I not? But, um, you know, that I sensed that tendency. And I tried very hard to see things with nuance, you know, with very clear eyed about exactly what was wrong and why I was leaving, but also not to rewrite history and cast them as villains, because they I don't believe they are, I think that they are I think that they are good people who have been trapped by bad ideas and that the way forward is to try to help them find a different way of seeing things, to reframe those paradigms the way that people did for me, because that was what what changed my heart and mind.
1: The fact that you, can, you spent your teenage years still searching for nuance, despite being raised in that kind of thinking, Like, where do you think that came from? I mean, you weren't entirely isolated in the family from the rest of the world.
2: I think it has more to do with honesty you know i I knew that i if i if I went either of those directions either to only to to romanticize the past or to demonize it that neither of those was honest and the honesty was absolutely a huge part of my upbringing, like Westboro's commitment to truth you no. Know, in spite of whatever it would cost us in terms of time and money and resources and relationships, reputation, anything that it cost us, it was, you know, it, everything fell at the altar of truth. And so I think that's I think that's where the impulse came from. After I left the church, um, I had a, a new friend who said. You know, in a way, leaving Westboro Baptist Church was the most Westboro Baptist Church thing you could have done. They're the ones who taught you to stand up for what you believe in, no matter what it cost you. They just never imagined you'd be standing up to them. And I talk about that so much because it's, it's one of the things that gave me real hope, the sense that, that people would let me talk about my family with nuance. Whereas when I left, I basically thought that I would just, nobody would be, would allow that, that they would want me and need me to completely demonize my family in order for me to ever be able to move on, to not constantly be paying for the sins of my past. I would have to throw my family under the bus, essentially. Mm. And so it's been really amazing to have these conversations with people who can recognize both the good and the bad.
1: And it's really interesting because I think I maybe did have the assumption that you guys would, in terms of the, the young people in the Westboro Baptist Church, would be somewhat removed from regular society. But uh, as you detail in the book, that you did go to regular public schools and you were allowed to basically read what you want and listen to what music you wanted and watch TV and films and stuff like that. Um, and there is the interesting... Uh, reply which was that your mother heard sort of thinking was that well of course but they're they're never going to leave because you know there's nothing out there that could tempt them away from this family because you know our belief is too strong yeah we already we knew the truth and so whenever we
2: would see you know things like premarital relationships or homosexuality or anything in any of these things that Westboro would be considered uh, considering sinful um we would just automatically have this, you know, negative response of, oh, that's just a whore. Um, and so we would have these, you know, instinctive responses, negative responses to those things. We didn't see them as an example for us to follow, but for an ex- as an example for us to avoid. Like, this is something sinful that will lead us to hell, and so therefore... You know, we're, we're not we weren't persuaded by him. Yeah.
1: And I loved reading in terms of your your literature tastes. I, I was like, oh my goodness. I like you know, little kid in Australia and a kid growing up in the Westboro Baptist church Turns out they have really similar <laughs> tastes <t-tasting laughs> in books. <laughs> RS9, yeah. Goosebumps, Oh my That's gosh, That's amazing. You I had a love for Stephen King from Stephen really, King, at yeah. early age as well. It's- I think about there's a there's a, a
2: part of um, The Eyes of the Dragon that I loved so much <laughs> and I, I it has stuck with me forever. It's where like the the judge is, you know, he, he, the accusation is brought against, you know, one of the the princes um, and you know, about the death of their father. And he starts crying at the accusation and the judge takes his crying as a sign of his guilt rather than of his innocence. Right. And it just immediately, and I think this is partly because in my family, there was such a this constant impulse to kind of, assume the worst motives of others and I was like that's not fair <laughs> like
1: read that and
2: it just is this constant there's yeah. like I feel like grace is a huge theme of the book and mm-hmm. it's you know the epigraph of the book is this line from the great Gatsby that says reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope and so that like things like that seeing that judge and those things in my family that impulse to the knee-jerk judgment and the attribution of the worst kinds of motives like I want to be so far you
1: know in the opposite direction now um you say in the book about how i think it was with josh he used to have big debates while Mm -hmm. we while picketing (laughs) actually about (laughs) like the philosophy to be Mm -hmm. found in stephen king um that there was there were things to be found for even people in a very sort of particular set of circumstances, like yourself,
2: mm-hmm. it's really funny. There was another part just in that section of the book that got cut. I wrote about The Giver, mm-hmm. and and how like I I saw those you know books, you know Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein and Animorphs, as kind of an escape into these worlds that were such you know so different from my own. And then, you know, The Giver, I remember feeling so sad on behalf of, like, the fact that their lives were entirely controlled by the elders. <laughs> Maybe they weren't so different from my life than I, than I thought. Our posture was, when we were reading these things, that we were not going to be influenced in any kind of negative way. But one thing that I realized later um, was that I would read these... I can't even think of the names of them, um, but they were these like kind of historical novels, and they were talking about how women in this age were basically they went from being the property of their fathers to the to the property of their husbands, and I just remembered being so offended on their <laughs> behalf that so this was, you know, and and that's essentially what kind of what happened at Westboro. Like, yeah. we d- weren't considered property, of course. Like that that wasn't part of our like our language, but to go like. F- as I grew up, the, the restrictions on, on women and children, you know, grew and grew exponentially such that, you know, we, I, wasn't, I, un, I came to understand I was never going to, you know, contrary to my older brother and other older of uh, my older cousins and my aunts and uncles, like I was never going, there was never going to be a point at which I was no longer a child. Mm. I was going to be living in my, in my parents' house and subject to their authority until the day I got, it, got married, if I ever did get married. Which was highly unlikely, considering most of the church is my family. Mm. But if I ever did, I would go from being under their authority to be under my husband's authority, and there was never going to be any. And so, remembering those those books, like I, I think there were absolutely things that we read in those books that that resonated in on a subconscious level and mm. kind of were part of the you know framing of of my upbringing.
1: You obviously shared this with your siblings. Josh was the first of your siblings to leave, mm-hmm. um, and that was a really important moment for you when it was discovered that he'd left during the night and he'd left an envelope behind? Um, with a letter and you ended up reading that letter and it has the line uh, we pick at these people and they hate us for it and I have had enough of it um, and you you sort of made the note I shook my head as my eyes traced that line again and again I knew there were some difficult parts of the life we'd been living but being reviled wasn't one of them the fact that people hated us was cause for great happiness and there is this sort of sense that, that the Westboro Baptist Church to this day even though it has changed a great deal in the sort of short period of time that it did sort of run on two things, which was persecution and that's members of the Westboro Baptist Church sort of feeling a sense of power in the fact that people shouted at them and hated them uh, and fear. There is this phobia that if you leave, one that you'll never see your family again, which is in some parts true, but also um that life on the outside could never be better than than what you have on on the inside
2: yeah absolutely that um you know persecution as proof of righteousness that was a huge part of of my upbringing the understanding that it was it was a good thing to be hated it was a good thing that there were so few of us because you know only eight people went on the (laughs) ark, and they were all related Noah and his wife and their three sons and their three wives like so all of the things that you think would normally be a kind of a check on like Causing us to think, huh? Like, what if we're wrong? Like, everybody says we're wrong. Maybe we're wrong, you know. And occasionally, we would like half entertain those those kinds of ideas, but not really. Mm-hmm. Like, be- and because there was always, an, you know, a biblical answer, like some 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 way of of reframing that um, the situation, such that we were we were the ones who came out on top. We were the righteous. We were the good. And then fear—it's huge. It is a huge part of how they see the world. And I think it is a huge part of how, like, what what keeps people in it. You know, when I first left, I have I had a really hard time, in, and I started talking to other members of my cousins, especially who had left, and you know, I started asking them, like, did you, like, how long were you there that what you when you had, you know, when 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 did you start having doubts, and how long did it take you to leave? And because for me, it was a four month period, and it was excruciating. Mm. To not be one hundred, like it's the honesty thing to not be one hundred percent honest about everything that was going on in my in my heart and mind during that time, to not be completely forthright with these people that I loved and who were my entire community for so long um and and I have asked also my cousins like do you think that some people stay just because of the family and you know and, and they think yes mm. and and then talking to some of them so one of my cousins knew that he was going to leave after high school and he didn't leave until a year after college because of how afraid he was of what was going to happen after he left the idea of like being all in and on the same page with people on everything that matters and it's, it's just an, an incredibly empowering feeling um the sense that i had been doing things that i th- thought were so good and righteous and the only way that I could do good in the world, and then coming to think, "Oh my God, not only was it not those things, it was the exact opposite and now this means that I have to leave my family and my lifelong home and my my job at the family law firm and everything that had been important in my life, and the world that's left to me is this all these people that I've spent my whole life antagonizing who have no reason to give me another chance mm-hmm. um, and to it's just there's an abject terror there and and what is going to become of me yeah. you know after I leave and and you're right the sense that life is that I have no it's it was a, it was a, an, an abyss you know it felt like stepping off you know into this completely unknown and almost surely um you know horrific circumstances and yet it felt like the only choice at that point
1: You had a very unique experience leaving in that you were operating the Westboro sort of Twitter account through your own account, but you were the sort of public face of the Westboro Baptist Church on Twitter. And then uh, through Twitter, you started engaging with people in the outside world and you started having these debates with people about how uh, the church was um, interpreting scripture. And then that sort of led to you recognizing that there were a lot of inconsistencies and therefore there was room to doubt. You had to leave in a very public way, uh, even though you, you you did sort of leave Twitter for a little bit and then came back and wrote a public letter on Medium. How have you found it? Because uh, now you're on the outside and you, you can't contact your family on the inside. But with your siblings on the outside, have you sort of all compared experiences in terms of how you've adjusted to life on the outside? Because you would have all had very different things to have to learn to adjust for. And I guess with you, you were kind of eased into... The outside world, because of the nature in which you did it,
2: yeah, I mean everyone has you know as as obviously we all grew up in this in the same church, my sibling yes my my three siblings who left, but also I have you know quite a few cousins um, who have left as well and and we it, it has surprised me how different our experiences were, how different our experiences were at the church. With, I mean, sometimes even within the same family, but, you know, among the different families, you know, the different households, um, how our parents raised us. I I feel very lucky that my my parents, you know, even among the rest of the church, my mom could absolutely be more hardline than almost anyone else and definitely held us to a very high standard. Um, And you know, that has served me really well in a lot of ways, you know, to this, you know, work ethic and all the, all the ways that, that being held to a high standard can make you, um, you know, uh, operate more efficiently and effectively in the world. Um, but the love that my parents showed us was never, it was, it was so over the top and overwhelming. And I, I understand that that's not the case for, for everyone, even, even within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, the public aspect of it, it felt like it felt like a, some kind of a burden, maybe, that mm-hmm. the fact that I, you know, somewhat uniquely among other people in the church, because I was so public-facing, that I f- felt like it was a responsibility. And then it became something, you know, that, that I thought, you know, I'm glad that I've had to wrestle with this, because that, I think, has been a huge part of my ability to to move on and to process all of this as, as kind of fast as I have since leaving. Um, and it's made me really emotionally, I think, uh, more mature and healthier, and you know, mentally, you know, just from my mental health perspective, I was asked recently, like, what was my favorite or or the most, you know, the best part of, you know, having published this book, and the thing that comes to my mind first is this message that I got from a young man um, who said that he, you know, and during Westbro's heyday, he was, um, he would, he was struggling with his sexuality at the time, and that he would consume Westboro's content compulsively like almost as a form of self-harm and that reading the book and um and seeing me working to dismantle these arguments from the outside now um gave him a sense of of peace and closure and so all of this i think has come from the public nature of having to you know having to address and make amends and do the work that
1: i've been doing for the last 7 years now you are now one member of this family that has to go out and, I guess, be slightly more reciprocal to, you know, you have to be slightly more open to people's feelings of grief and anger. Is it a burden or do you think you have actually made it into something that is a positive? I think it's largely positive, but it's still really
2: difficult to talk to people who have been really deeply hurt and affected by Westbro's message and sometimes sometimes people i feel like they still talk to me as if i'm still part of the church as if i'm still doing the things that i used to do as if the last 7 years don't exist and and there can be part of me that that starts to like get upset or or feel like um you know this feels it will start to feel a little bit kind of unfair like like i feel like i'm being made to um be made responsible for not just my actions but the actions of everyone in the church. Anytime I start to feel that, um you know, I I just remember what we did to people was incredibly unfair and that the discomfort and the pain that I feel now having to look back at at those things and to and to feel the anger and the grief from other people um is relatively minimal compared to the, the grief that we inflicted on people in their most vulnerable moments. And it doesn't make it always easy, but I, I do still think it's important. Otherwise, I, I, I wouldn't be doing it.
0: That was Megan Phelps Roper. Unfollow, a journey from hatred to hope, leaving the Westboro Baptist Church, is published by Riverrun in the UK and Farrah Strauss and Giroux in the US. After the break, we'll be joined by author and journalist Claire McGlasson, and we're talking cults in literature. I'm Anoushka Astana and this is Today in Focus. We're bringing you general election coverage every day from hartlepool i mean the government talk about left behind towns and left behind places and actually that presupposes they were ever at the same starting point to belfast
1: i'm old enough to remember getting on the bus and them coming on with sniffer dogs to find out if there were bombs under the seats
0: we're talking to people and not just politicians to really get to the heart of this election subscribe now wherever you download your podcasts welcome back to the guardian books podcast with us in the studio now is Claire McGlasson, author of *The Rapture*, um, which is very handily a novel about the very a very real story of an English cult called uh, the Panacea Society, yeah. based in the little town of Bedford. For those who don't know it, it's about sixty miles outside London, and it was also has a statue to John Bunyan, yes. who was the author of the *The um, Pilgrim's Progress*. So it has this weird religious heritage going on. Why, is this why um, they
3: set up this society in Bedford? I think it just happened to be the fact that the um, woman who became their leader lived there already, um, but they did come to believe that Bedford was the, uh, was the home of the original Garden of Eden, so hmm. um, they came to believe it was very significant that it was there, but I think it was more, or more luck
0: than judgement to start with. And she was called Mabel Baltrop and she restyled herself Octavia um, and they called themselves um, the Daughters of God. And it was this was early on in the 20th century. And as you make very clear in this novel, part of what seems to be going on is the grief for the loss mm. of all the men who've died. And this is this society of women, many of whom have lost people in the Great War.
3: Yeah, I think in some ways it was a perfect storm as cults often grow out of. So a lot of them had lost men in the war um, and they came to believe that... The, the terrible horrors that they had, you know, heard about, had experienced loss, that that was meaningful. They thought that was a sign that the end was coming. And I think thought men had made rather a hash of things, really. I mean, they believed that Christ was going to save their, um, save their souls, but they were questioning how can such suffering happen here and now? And it's a great question of a lot of religions. How can suffering happen now? And they came to believe that because women, um, well, Eve had caused the fall, it was up to women to, to make everything right again. And that
0: would end suffering here on earth. They allowed a couple of men in, um, <laughs> in very subsidiary roles, Yes, but that got them into trouble because one of the themes of this novel, which I think is, is totally fascinating, and I've thought about a lot, where you, it always comes up with, particularly with regard to women mystics, going back to Julian of Norwich and people, is what rapture means. Mm. It's sort of orgasmic, it's, yes. it's on the brink between religious rapture and sexual rapture and you this is part of what you're exploring in this book isn't it?
3: Yeah I'm really glad you picked up on that because that was where the title came from. I mean um, theologically the term the rapture I, I wasn't sure because it, it relates more to the sort of American understanding of that, you know, everyone will wake up and we'll find out that all the good people have been spirited off to heaven and they'll be left behind, which we may come on to with some of the other cult books later. So technically speaking, it wasn't describing the rapture in that sense, but the rapture of religious fervor and the rapture of falling in love um, and how those two could be confused um, when you read medieval accounts of nuns in convents. And they are describing a relationship. They are the bride of Christ. They are experiencing this, the rapture of that um, elation of feeling chosen and seen and in a relationship and feeling God. You're a
0: television journalist and this is your first novel. It's a very good story. Why did you decide not to write it as a non-fiction book but to make it into a novel?
3: I suppose because I, I mean there's so many facts there, the archive is huge, so I've read their shopping list invoices, coal deliveries, hmm. diaries, confessions, um, but I was interested more in sort of the gaps between those things um, and they were the punchline of a joke in life and since then. Um, you know bonkers women uh they were dismissed and ridiculed, and I wanted to understand what would lead you to join, what would lead you to stay, and look at the circumstances that um that kept them there and that's not so funny um and it's much it's a much broader question, so I wanted to explore those things, which are the sort of they fall down the cracks between the facts almost and I was just much more interested in that
0: uh, one one of the results of that is that um you're dealing with real life characters, but you give them different endings to the story yes um, that's quite a you, you're sort of quite cavalier with the facts
3: well I, I had to think a lot about the morals of doing that really and I did think a lot about it these were real people I mean there's a non-fiction book written about them already there's a museum which exists um, they kept everything deliberately because they thought we would come to know that they'd been right all along and we would want to read about them so that archive was there for us to read about them and the the line for me was I didn't want to use this as a fictional world to sort of project. A, you know, I've got a great murder mystery idea, or I didn't want to use it as a backdrop. So everything that's in the book is either is inspired by either something I read as a fact that happened,
0: or how I felt about what I read. The, the last cult member only died in two thousand and twelve, or something. Yes, I mean it's extraordinary. So yes, it's, uh, you know this this quite eccentric yes. philosophy, and yet it went on for a hundred years, and at its height had thousands of members in other parts of the world as well.
3: Yes, uh, about 130,000, I think, wrote for healing from from the leader, Octavia. And the last member was still cleaning um, Octavia's house because they at first thought none of them would die. And then as they did start to die, their houses were sealed up. Um, And this lady, Ruth Klein, would go and clean her leader's house, waiting for the day that Jesus would come back with her. So everything is still there. There's a museum. You know, her glasses are by the bed, her perfume bottle's on the dressing table.
0: Sean, you you're sort of quite into cults, aren't you?
1: Yeah, in well, a theoretical way. <laughs> I think, like maybe, and yeah, yeah. I haven't joined any. Um, I, I think I'm perhaps interested in, in what you were just saying before, Claire. About um, what is it? What is the impulse? What what is it that these these groups are hitting on in terms of the impulse within humans? Um, this need for belonging and um, the fact that when you're on the outside, sometimes their beliefs seem entirely illogical or even frightening um, sometimes violent but uh, for the people on the inside it's like a completely different perspective and how can someone's brain be manipulated in those ways um, so yeah yeah I think it, it it is sort of generally fascinating and I guess like before you'd heard about the Panacea Society I'm sure that you were probably interested in in cults generally as well I guess
3: Yeah, I very much came to it through this cult. I I think the way that I had an idea about cults that it tends to be, you know, a charismatic male leader, Mm. you know, manipulating particularly younger women for money and for sex and for power. And this was so left field to me in that it's a, um, you know, a middle aged, middle class woman called Mabel. who who garners all these followers, and it seemed to be, you know, very eccentric, very British. But when you look at the way the cult started to operate, there are similarities, you know, throughout the novels, throughout the real cases of of cults. And for me, writing it, I've I've come to see so many parallels with, with sort of coercive control in relationships. You know, it starts off that you feel that you belong and you've been seen and you're wanted and you can be important, and then very slowly you get your your confidence is undermined, you're, you're tra- you know you're, you're transgressing the rule You're being punished for that. And you become so lost in that belief system um, that it's very difficult to turn around and say, I've wasted all this time. I was wrong all along. So it's interesting how the the sort of theology of a particular cult can be constantly shifting to to make allowances for itself. You know, we thought that nobody would die in that cult. First person dies and it's rewritten to mean something else. And it's constantly shifting to
1: keep everybody swept along with it. I mean, that's often the thing um, with a lot of cults. And I was asked to sort of come up with the books that I had read about cults. And the thing that leapt out at me and uh, even reading Megan's book was that so much, so many of them are rooted in this idea that the world is going to end. But there is this interesting idea about that that cult being the elite few that have got it right. um, And that they are the ones that will survive even if the rest of the world um, dies. I was really glad with your top 10 when you mentioned Underground by um, Haruki Murakami. Yes. um, Because that's such a fascinating story. um, And it's not necessarily one that people have always heard about. But um, there was a a subway gas attack in Tokyo in 1995. um, And uh, it was organized by this doomsday cult called Aum Shinrinko. And it was the... uh, uh, founder of that cult, uh, Shoka as- Asahara, who he basically believed that a nuclear Armageddon was going to happen, that a third world war was going to happen and it would be instigated by America. And uh, Murakami, uh, who's obviously known as a novelist, uh, he wrote this non-fiction work in 1997 where he went and interviewed uh, victims of the gas attack. Uh, the second half of the book then interviews people who were part of the cult and some of them have left, but some of them are still really devout. Uh, believers in the cult, and I was going back this morning to go read about it, and realizing that it still exists. This this cult, it's, it goes under a different name now. There's two splinter uh, groups that have formed from it, but um, it was still regarded as it was regarded as a, a, a terrorist organization. And uh, the uh, founder and uh, 12 other members of the cult were only executed in uh, 2018. So it's actually like a really long ongoing story so so
0: putting together these 10 books does this mean that you're you've had an abiding interest in cults or or did you just have you just concocted it in order to talk about your own book
3: a bit of both i was reading a lot of um real life accounts from people who'd left you know plymouth brethren exclusive brethren trying to read lots of books a lot of them self-published on online of people's experiences of trying to leave and how sanctions were taken against them and Mm -hmm. trying to
0: see you know the sort of um, hierarchy and power structures within cult. It's interesting you mentioned the exclusive brethren and you're referring there to In the Days of Rain which is Rebecca Stott's book Mm -hmm. about her her childhood and I did a session with her and a a load of Baltic authors at the London Book Fair Um, and There was a moment in the audience, a moment in the session when somebody in the audience stood up and said, what did it do to the relationship between mothers and children? Because in my experience as a colonised state, colonised by the Soviet Union, what they tried to do was always to break that bond between mothers and children. And I looked around and suddenly everybody on the panel and most of the people in the audience were crying. And you realise that actually the manipulation of family relationships is absolutely central to an awful lot of these Yes. And the
3: word family appears so I mean, Manson family, mm. Louise Jensen's new book, The Family, it's it's a key word. So it's the difference between the families that we're born into and the
0: families that we find for ourselves
3: or people who don't have a family, how they might seek that. So um, so in the
0: case of the, the Soviets, that what they were trying to do was make the state, the yes. mother, the, the parent of the child. Yes. Rather than the the, the fam the, the family of birth and I, and that suddenly I thought ah yes this is something about cults that I hadn't understood before that's you know about it's about basic power structures but in a very in a very um, tiny close focused mm-hmm. context why do you think we're so interested in cults at this moment you just mentioned on the way in that you're you've been asked to chair a session with yes. four new cult books novels and and non-fiction it it does seem doesn't it Sean? as well that yeah we're well, in a bit of a moment for cults i feel like there's always been a moment for cults.
1: i feel like there's there's always some sort of fascination and i think certainly i think maybe it's slightly timed to the wider acceptance of true crime as being a a sort of a valid uh, mm. uh, uh, interest. Everyone's still fascinated by Jonestown um, and have been since uh, the, the Jonestown massacre happened. So um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know whether we're in a specific moment now, whether we're sort of in a moment where it's kind of okay to own up to being interested.
3: I think I'm fascinated by that degree of belief. Mm. I mean, we live in an increasingly secular society. Um, I, perhaps at a time where more more of us were you know, believers of, of mainstream religion, um, you know, I think these sort of cults could be just dis- dismissed. Mm. And I think now there's a fascination of that degree of believing in something. And I think what's really interesting about the books um, that unpick that, so The Road to Jonestown, which was Jeff Gunn, who, another journalist who wrote, you know, a really forensic account of... It reminded me of the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, Mm. you know, these miracles he's seeming to perform and he unpicks what's the really dark things happening behind that. Mm. But to understand how someone could believe, not only live for something, but be prepared to die for it. It's so outside our, most of us, you know, our belief system.
0: Yeah. But Um, one of the things that ties in with one of the things that comes out of your book is that truth has to be manipulated because these beliefs do not stand up to scrutiny no no so so they often involve you mentioned a curtain or in your case in the case of the rapture a sealed box yes which which you know the the truth will only be revealed when the sealed box is opened because actually there isn't a truth underneath it
3: no and there is an element of theater in some of these um you know in some, in some of the cults and this sort of you you do need those points to to pin the Um, pin the beliefs onto, whether it's an amazingly charismatic person um, who everyone can be drawn to, or whether it is something like, in this case, The Box.
0: So much to think about there. Thanks very much for joining us, Claire. The Rapture is published by Faber, and that's all for this week. Next week, we talk to American poet and novelist Ben Lerner about his novel, The Topeka School. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter at Guardian Books or on the podcast page. And remember, you can subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead. And me, Shan Kane. And our producer, Esther Apokojeni. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to
1: theguardian.com slash podcasts.